It was as if they had been given permission by Trump to let these demons out, to tell the world just what they thought. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, and The Bradcast with guest host Angie Coiro. Prominent white supremacist and Donald Trump supporter Richard Spencer has been back in the news this week after he praised Trump for not mentioning the six million Jews killed in a statement commemorating International Holocaust Memorial Day. Trump has faced widespread criticism for the omission, but the administration has repeatedly defended the statement. Senator Tim Kaine went as far as calling it a form of Holocaust denial. Spencer, however, praised the statement as the de-Judification of the Holocaust. Earlier this week, Juan Gonzalez and I spoke to Andrea Pitzer. Her upcoming book is titled One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. It looks at mass civilian detention without trial from 1896 to today. Andrea Pitzer began by commenting on Trump's statement. One thing I think is very interesting about the omission of the Jews in the Holocaust Remembrance Day statement is, again, looking back at the history, that uh, it's it's perhaps a mistake that that was done at first. It may have been an omission. It's a very strange omission, given all the concerns that were raised about whether Trump had the support of white nationalists and, and whether that was reciprocated during the campaign, uh, to have forgotten that when it would have been an easy thing to do correctly. But even if one gives them the benefit of a doubt that it was an error, when it was pointed out, it was doubled down on. And there was the strange statement that uh, it was actually meant to be inclusive. It was including all groups. And, and I think that's more where it becomes disturbing, because this is one of the lines that we've seen in, in Soviet Russia um, and in some white nationalist uh, sectors, that, well, sure, they say a lot of people died in the war, as if it were just an inevitable casualty of war. And certainly, tens of millions of people were casualties of combat and, and other uh, crises during the war, as there are in many wars. But— uh, it's really a singular moment. The attempt to eradicate a people from the face of the earth, uh, and it was uh, it was also the Jews, but uh, especially the Jews, but also the Roma and Sinti, the gypsies, as they also were known. And uh, this was really to bend the power of a state during wartime to eradicate people from the face of the earth, even when it went against your war interests. Uh, is just is a really singular thing. And I think to talk about the Holocaust without acknowledging that is really to miss its singular moment. So, in Andrea Pitzer, I wanted to go to what the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, said, defending the decision not to reference Jews in Trump's statement on International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Well, I think he's aware of the, what people have been saying, but I think, by and large, he's been praised for it. I think the president recognized the tremendous loss of life that came from the Holocaust. But I think with respect to, you know, Israel and, and the Jewish people specifically, um, there's been no better friend than Donald Trump when it comes to protecting Israel, building a better friendship with Israel. You look at what Prime Minister Netanyahu's talked about. He welcomes this administration. He appreciates the friendship and respect that he has shown to Israel and to the Jewish people. But to suggest otherwise, John, I, I frankly— I, I got to be honest. I mean, the president went out of his way to recognize the Holocaust. 
and the suffering that went through it and the people that were affected by it and the loss of life, and to make sure that America never forgets what so many people went through, whether they were Jews or gypsies, gays, disability, I mean, priests. So that was Sean Spicer, who is the White House press secretary, defending not referring specifically to Jews on White on, uh, um, on Holocaust Remembrance Day, Andrea Pitzer. Well, one thing that's interesting about that is that he said he went out of his way. Well, I don't think he really went out of his way. Presidents have been issuing these proclamations before, so it's not some new effort that was made. And the second thing is, uh, I think that it— the language that was used, and it was something very close to, uh, to ensure that the forces of evil never again defeat the powers of good. And that goes back to what I was saying before, this idea of stripping out context and history. That sounds like something from Harry Potter. That sounds like some apocalyptic fairy tale. Um, the, ho the Holocaust and World War II were very specific events. And I think to sort of neuter them down to these narratives of just simple good and evil that can be carried around and used for uh, other purposes, it goes to the same kind of trend that the treatment of immigrants does, which, you know, it, it really doesn't look at the exact context that we're in and help us make good judgments about it. It, it renders it down to something that can be used for propaganda. At the Holocaust Museum in Washington, uh, there is a—one of the signs that's up there is a placard that says, Early Warning Signs of Fascism. And it has a list that includes uh, powerful and continuing nationalism, disdain for human rights, identification of enemies as a unifying cause, supremacy of the military, rampant sexism, controlled mass media, obsession with national security, uh, corporate power protected, labor power suppressed, disdain for intellectuals and the arts, obsession with crime and punishment. Uh, your thoughts as, a, as the, this list of the early signs of fascism at the Holocaust Museum? Well, I, I think the list speaks for itself. Um, I, I, at this point, given the blitz that's been run on the normal democratic process uh, by the administration that's just been in for a week and a half at this point, I do think that we have to say that even now that he's in power, the authoritarian tendencies that Trump showed before the election are definitely coming into play. I think it's important to remember, however, that the U.S. is not Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Journalists can report, lawyers can litigate, uh, individuals can run for local office and call their representatives and protest. So, whether Trump is uh, actually an authoritarian, he's not in an authoritarian state at this point. So I think there needs to be a lot of concern. But I do think that uh, there doesn't need to be panic at this point. It needs to be a kind of strategic awareness and consideration of what our options are as journalists, lawyers, as individuals and as citizens.
Studios, which is owned by Disney and YouTube, have cut some of their ties with PewDiePie. Now, Maker Studios has completely cut its ties with PewDiePie, the largest YouTuber, the most popular YouTuber. And YouTube itself has decided to uh, essentially get rid of PewDiePie as a Google preferred partner and also uh, did away with his uh, YouTube Red program. Okay, so it was an additional way for him to gain revenue through YouTube. Now, why? Why would they sever ties with the most popular YouTuber? Well, there have been accusations uh, against PewDiePie and some of his videos indicating that those videos had anti-Semitic messages and imagery. Uh, to give you some more details on that, uh, let me read you from the Wall Street. Read to you from the Wall Street Journal. They reported that since August, PewDiePie has posted nine videos that include anti-Semitic jokes or Nazi imagery, and that's according to a review that they did. PewDiePie's account also took down three videos with a total of about 23 million views. In the January 22nd video, uh, PewDiePie showed a man dressed as Jesus Christ saying, quote, Hitler did absolutely nothing wrong. Now, I think the straw that broke the camel's back was uh, a recent video where he used this, this app called Fiverr, where you pay people $5 or a small amount of money to do anything. And so he hired uh, two Indian men to hold a sign that read, Death to All Jews. Okay, mm-hmm. and at that point, Disney was like, "We're done." Okay, so uh, of the actor's suspension, uh, PewDiePie said in a later video, and this is in regard to the Jesus video, uh, "Isn't it ironic that Jews found another way to fuck Jesus over?" Jesus. Yeah. So there's more, uh, and I'll get to a few more details about the other videos that he's put up. But he says, "Look, uh, I'm known." for joking around, for making crude comments. I don't have a hateful bone in my body. This is an overreaction. And nonetheless, I understand that it's offensive. And, you know, that's why he took three of the videos down. But he's denying that he has any anti-Semitic intentions in doing these videos. Okay, so it is a complicated issue. Uh, First of all, that's a lot of money he just lost. And so the penalty is very severe. I want you to understand the context of it. now you might think that's perfectly justifiable. I'm just letting you know it's not a slap on the wrist. So, now in terms of um, what he did and why it's wrong and and what our reaction should be. So, I I, I think I believe I haven't watched all nine videos. I got to keep it real with you guys. But I would be so surprised if he intended to be anti-Semitic. I briefly met him at a YouTube event, not enough to know him and to know his soul, as some people say. I have no idea, right? But I'd be super surprised based on the fact that he basically is doing a lot of comedy. He likes to push the envelope. This is him pushing the envelope too far. Uh, and, 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 you know, in my brief, brief interaction with him. So I, I think I believe him that he does not mean to be anti Semitic. Now, on the other hand, on the other hand, why is he, why is he wrong about this? And why did, why do I think that he went in the wrong direction here? Because I think that at this point we're far away enough far away from the Holocaust that that people have starting to get desensitized to it. And and I just look, I've read a lot into it. Uh, I, I took a course on it in in, in law school, and I was uh, really lucky. I Telford Taylor, who was one of the Prosecutors at Nuremberg who, who taught me, and and so I saw all the evidence, and and I've been reading up on, on it coincidentally recently too, and when you see what happened there, it is so horrific, 
that you once you hear those stories it becomes luckily impossible to joke around about it one that i shared on air recently and sorry if this is going to offend you but i've got to tell you why people get so sensitive to this i think mo- most people know but a lot of younger people they don't know why hey why can't i make this joke right so in when they first started t- testing the gas chambers um they built concrete really really um thick because they didn't want the gas coming out and accidentally killing the nazis mm-hmm. or or other people around but the gas would take 20 minutes or longer to kill the people inside the gas chamber and it was so horrific you could hear them screaming anyway and they would their nail marks would be in the concrete mm-hmm. and then they would take out the bodies and use them to provide heat for the camp and people knew that it was their friends who was providing the heat for the camp so when you hear stories like that you get that none of this is funny mm-hmm. and so if you haven't heard stories like that and you haven't been educated to what what happened in the holocaust then at some point people are going to start to make jokes and not realize how inappropriate it is and i think that uh that i hope that it's a learning experience for folks and there are some lines you shouldn't cross it doesn't make you cool it doesn't make you edgy it just makes you a jerk and and really insensitive so i'm just giving you context on that and and at what point should you level this kind of punishment and consequences for pewdie pie when we think he didn't intend to be this offensive mm-hmm. that's a great question because one last thing that's important well if you start saying it and some people know you're joking but others don't by the way the daily stormer or uh or stormfront yeah, yep. uh which is a a neo nazi website are have now become big fans of pewdiepie yeah. and they don't get it they think it's real and and so now they're promoting it yeah. at some point people lose track of what's a joke and what's not a joke and then all of a sudden it becomes acceptable to put signs like that up yeah. and we don't want to normalize that so um in regard to what you just referenced with uh the daily stormer they uh apparently have shared his videos on their website on january 23rd the site uh changed its motto to the world's number one pewdiepie fan site and that's according to the internet archive celebrating his uh or pewdiepie for making the masses comfortable with our ideas see that right there is the most important part because if you do nine videos and some people know you're joking and some don't and they start to think it's funny or clever to make jokes about killing the jews or writing putting swastikas or, or supporting hitler you're starting to normalize it and that's what we're worried about here in the us that that casual racism has begun and bigotry has begun to be very much normalized this is a whole nother level so i'm glad we're having this conversation and that people are learning from the experience what should happen with pewdiepie that's not for me to decide as for PewDiePie and Google to figure it out and 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 Disney and and I'm sure they will but it's a teachable moment and and it is an interesting phenomenon and we, and we should remember what happened so that we don't make the same mistakes again remember how we forgot remember how no one ever really died in the wars we fought cuz each gunshot came from our fingertips and we never really kept them loaded just in case cuz each enemy was a friend and none of it was about oil religion or land it was all just pretend remember how we used to bend reality like we were circus strongmen 
like our imaginations were in shape then, like we were all ninjas trained in the deadly art of did not, like I totally got you, did not, remember how we forgot? So Mark, um, as I was just saying uh, off air, that I imagine it's a, an extremely uh, busy time uh, for you folks at the Southern Poverty Law Center in um, the the tracking of of I mean, is it fair to say that there has been a rise of I mean, maybe this is just it's even silly to to ask, but a substantial rise in um, hate. Uh, what we call, I guess, hate attacks and 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 and, and organized hate groups uh, over the course of what was the uh, Republican and then the general uh, election campaign, and now uh, with the election of Donald Trump uh, to the presidency. Yes, I think that is fair to say. Uh, uh, you know, most noticeably, uh, uh, one day after Trump was actually elected. Uh, we began to notice uh, very quickly a huge spike uh, in both hate crimes generally and lesser hate incidents. Uh, as a result, we decided that we needed to uh, keep track of this, and we found 1,094 of these incidents around the country uh, in the first 34 days uh, after the election. They were wow. clearly about Trump. Uh, we looked at the details of these uh, threats and crimes and so on uh, and found that in fully 37% of the cases, uh, the perpetrators had actually named Donald Trump, uh, quoted his slogan, uh, Make America Great Again, uh, or uh, cited in some way his infamous comments about grabbing women. So, yes, wow. I, I think there's clearly an uptick. Uh, that surrounded the election. And then, more recently, of course, uh, we have been living through a really uh, extraordinary series of anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, we've had something like a 100 bomb threats called into Jewish community centers uh, and other Jewish institutions uh, in the last uh, six or seven weeks. Uh, and in just the last couple of weeks, uh, we have seen three uh, Jewish cemeteries desecrated uh, in a very major way. So there's something going on out there. Uh, and it's probably worth saying that it's not only uh, Jews who are being attacked. We've also seen four mosque arsons uh, since the beginning of January. So it's been really quite uh, a month or two. And, and and before we get into some of the specifics of these, because I, I don't think I was even aware of the uh, of the third uh, uh, Jewish cemetery that uh, had <laughs> been uh, vandalized. But I mean, uh, just to be clear here, I mean, because this is something that you have been doing for years. So we're not in. Uh, there's no possibility that suddenly you're you're. Um, uh, your reporting um, uh, processes have changed or that you guys have just gotten really good at collecting these stories. Um, when you guys notice there is an uptick and a significant one at that, it is because there's an uptick and not that you are, uh, you've changed your procedures in any way. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Uh, you know, to be perfectly candid, in the case of counting the uh, 1,094 incidents, uh, immediately after the election, you know, we don't have any comparable data uh, from the month following other elections. But I think it was obvious to everyone here uh, that we'd really never seen anything quite like that uh, and so tightly associated with the election. 
uh, in the same way. Uh, you know, this, I guess is anecdotal as well, but uh, I've been working here 18 years. Uh, many of my colleagues have been working here close to 30, uh, and none of us uh, remembers uh, anything like this spate of bomb threats uh, or the cluster of uh, funeral desecra- or cemetery desecrations. And what are, I mean, let's, uh, before we get to sort of, to, to um, Steve Bannon, who we've spoken to, uh, spoken about on this program uh, earlier in the, in the show about um, his sort of, um, I guess, economic uh, ideology. But before we get to uh, Bannon and um, uh, the uh, site Breitbart under his, um, uh, his leadership, before we get to that, I mean, can you give us a, a sense of the, the, the types of, of hate crimes and, um, uh, hate incidences that you have recorded, if there are any that, that stick out as uh, particularly um, uh, disturbing uh, or uh, unique in some fashion? Well, I mean, what I would say about the spate uh, of incidents that we saw uh, immediately after the election uh, was, first of all, that the bulk of them seemed to be aimed at immigrants generally and Muslims more specifically. But that the most remarkable thing about it uh, was that virtually every minority out there uh, was targeted. I mean, we saw attacks uh, or lesser incidents uh, aimed at at black people, brown people, immigrants, uh, Muslims, certainly, uh, and really, you know, gay people, LGBT people, uh, and even women uh, who are not a minority at all. Uh, so it was almost as if uh, Trump had kind of ripped the lid off of Pandora's box and all of these things had come spilling out. Uh, you know, the way it looked to me uh, was these were people uh, who had these attitudes uh, in a kind of subterranean way in the past, uh, but who felt empowered by Trump's uh, candidacy uh, and then especially his elections to say what they really felt inside. So it was as if they had been given permission by Trump uh, to let these demons out, to tell the world just what they thought uh, of Muslims, of Latinos, of gay people, and so on. I mean, there's there's two things that strike me. One is I'm curious if you have a a sense of how that process works. I mean, this idea of of uh, permission being given by someone they don't know, you know, to to unleash what you call as these demons. And the other that strikes me is that um, it's the if you there's two perspectives i guess that you can look at this from right one is from the perpetrator and one is from the victim from the victims uh it uh you know from the perpetrators i guess maybe these people look different or i should say from the victims the these attacks look different but from the perpetrator it seems to be there the common thread is that um uh a a white male heterosexual supremacy on some level well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, the one group of people who are not being attacked are white men. So, and, you know, uh, I mean, that makes some sense. I mean, white men still, uh, in a sense, run this country. Uh, obviously, we are not the same society we were in, in the 1950s. Uh, but, you know, white men are at the top of the pyramid. Uh, and although much has been said about the travails of white men, especially working class and middle class white men, and that those things are true, uh, still the situation they find themselves in is far superior uh, to that of any minority at all. 
So, so that's the first thing. So I, I certainly agree with that. Uh, as far as, you know, how do we get from what, what the officials and people in the public eye say to criminal violence? I mean, let me say a few things. Uh, because, you know, it is an argument and uh, it's not something that one can prove. Uh, you know, Donald Trump says this and then we see thus and such crimes uh, and they are related. At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. Very disturbing story. Uh, Donald Trump has a deputy assistant named Sebastian Gorka. He was recently photographed wearing a medallion associated with the Nazi friendly regime that ruled Hungary during World War II. Sort of odd. And people started looking into this. And the medal is part of an order of merit founded in 1920 by Miklos Horthy, Hungary's anti-Semitic ruler and Hitler's close ally who was officially designated by the United States State Department as a Nazi collaborator. That's right. Trump's assistant wears a pin that is uh, a reference to a Nazi collaborator. We have some pictures of Gorka wearing this paraphernalia at events related to Donald Trump. Uh, Other than being downright bizarre and creepy, it's also incredibly disturbing. Gorka is of Hungarian descent, told Breitbart, I'm a proud American now and I wear that medal now and again. Why? to remind myself of where I came from. In 2006, Gorka defended the use of the Arpad flag by people in Hungary, which was the symbol of the Arrow Cross Party, who killed thousands of Jews in World War II. From 2002 to 2007, Gorka was active in Hungarian politics and had close ties to the far right in Hungary. He was working with openly racist and anti-Semitic groups and public figures, collaborated with members of a Hungarian neo-Nazi political party to create a new far right party that had the goal of putting Christianity into Hungary's constitution. He's attended events with Hungary's most well-known far right extremists. He wrote explicitly racist. uh, He wrote articles for an explicitly racist and anti-Semitic newspaper called Magyar Demokrata, the U.S. State Department has officially recognized that newspaper as anti-Semitic and as Holocaust denying. And Donald Trump's deputy assistant, Sebastian Gorka, wrote for that newspaper, also worked for the Hungarian National Committee, which published uh, their official publication in news in 2004, wrote, we should get Jews out. In fact, We need to take back our country from them, take back our stolen fortunes. After all, these upstarts are sucking on our blood, getting rich off of our blood. 
embraced by the alt right. He's been on news outlets saying that foreign leaders should be afraid of Trump. Very few people are talking about this, Pat, but this guy is clearly less powerful than like Steve Bannon, for example, arguably a far more dangerous extremist. And isn't it pretty strange that Trump associates himself with so many anti-Semitic people, yeah. especially because I don't believe he is himself. I right. mean, his daughter's Jewish, his son-in-law's Jewish, and he says that he's the least anti-Semitic person. He's probably the type of guy who holds a lot of stereotypically anti-Semitic beliefs, but doesn't consider himself someone who actively uh, dislikes right. Jews as a result. But that type of thing can breed an environment where this type of guy ends up standing next to you and advising you, especially when you listen to the words that he speaks. I mean, his whole campaign message was America first, and yeah. that has uh, its background in a very anti-Semitic message, uh, yeah. not wanting to support Europe in uh, World War II from the outset or let in European refugees. And by the way, Gorka, an immigrant to the United States, born in the UK to Hungarian parents, but he's a white guy. He's not the type of immigrant that we need to be worried about. Everybody relax. This is the good type of immigrant. Eleven Jewish community centers across the country were hit by another wave of bomb threats on Monday. It was the fourth wave of nationwide bomb threats against JCCs in the last five weeks. In total, 69 threats have been reported against 54 JCCs. Meanwhile, at a cemetery in University City, Missouri, the grave sites of more than 100 Jews were vandalized over the weekend. The Southern Poverty Law Center has revealed the number of anti-Muslim groups in the United States tripled last year, from 34 uh, in 2015 to 101 last year. The Southern Poverty Law Center and other groups have said hate groups have been energized by the candidacy and then the election of Donald Trump. In recent weeks, Trump has faced increasing criticism for failing to denounce anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim threats. Well, on Tuesday, President Trump briefly addressed the recent wave of anti-Semitic threats after tremendous public outcry that he hadn't. His comments came after he toured the National Museum of African-American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. The anti-Semitic threats targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. President Trump's reading of that statement came less than a week after he chastised Jewish reporter Jake Turks for asking about the recent bomb threats at uh, President Trump's news conference. What we are concerned about and what we haven't really uh, heard being addressed is an uptick in anti-Semitism and how the government is planning to take care of it. There's been a report out that 48 uh, uh, bomb threats have been made against Jewish centers all across the country in the last couple of weeks. There are people who are committing anti-Semitic acts or threatening to. See, he said he's going to ask a very simple, easy question. And it's not. It's an important It's not. Not a, not a simple question. Not a fair question. Okay, sit down. I, I understand the rest of your question. So here's the story, folks. Uh, number one, I am the least 
anti-Semitic person that you've ever seen in your entire life. Number two, racism, the least racist person. In fact, we did very well relative to other people running as a Republican. Quiet, quiet, quiet. See, he lied about he was going to get up and ask a very straight, simple question. So, you know, it's welcome to the world of the media. He was telling the Jewish reporter to be quiet, quiet, quiet. Well, during a separate news conference only days earlier, uh, when he was standing with the Israeli prime minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, President Trump responded to a question from an Israeli reporter about the rise in anti-Semitic attacks by boasting about his election victory. Well, for more, we're joined by two guests, Stephen Goldstein, the executive director of the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect here in New York. The group posted a statement on Facebook, Mr. President, you're too little, too late. Acknowledgement of anti-Semitism today is not enough. And in Montgomery, Alabama, we're joined by Mark Potok. He is senior fellow at the Southern Poverty Law Center. He authored the group's year-end report, Hate Groups Increase for Second Consecutive Year as Trump Electrifies Radical Right. Uh, Stephen Goldstein and Mark Potok, welcome to Democracy Now! Stephen, let's begin with you. So you just heard that statement he read at the African-American Museum. Uh, your response? Well, I actually thought the president lost it, if it was possible to think that he already hadn't lost it. His response was remarkable for its tin eardom. This president said absolutely nothing over the weekend when Jewish grave sites were desecrated. He said absolutely nothing about bomb threats, and he refused even to include Jews in the Holocaust. Then all of a sudden— You mean the, the Holocaust World Remembrance. Holocaust Day, exactly. he did not cite Ast Jews as— Amy, astonishing, astonishing. Then all of a sudden, he wakes up on a Tuesday, decides to give a speech, which, by the way, he read with all the sincerity of a bad method actor. And this is a president who really knows how to speak with with passion when he wants to. And he expected our applause simply because he acknowledges anti-Semitism. And I have to ask, are our nation's expectations so low that our president, merely by acknowledging anti-Semitism, something other presidents have now done for decades, should receive some applause? And worse yet, his spokesperson, Sean Spicer, yesterday chastised my organization for not applauding and be grateful for the president's remarks. It's unbelievable. It was as if little crumbs of condescension were being thrown my organization's way. Remarkable tin eardom and remarkable prejudice coming from this administration. Hmm. Um, I want to see if we have this clip of the, of the reporter who asked the question yesterday. This is CBS News Foreign Affairs and White House correspondent Margaret Brennan questioning White House spokesperson Sean Spicer. Sean, um, I want to give you a chance to respond to something, because I think the, the president's remarks and your clarification about where he stands on anti-Semitism is clear. But after that statement was uh, made by the president, the Anne Frank Center released a pretty strongly worded one, right. saying um, that these remarks, while well, well received, are a Band-Aid on the cancer within the Trump administration, uh, saying that there is, whether blessed or otherwise, a sense of xenophobia within this administration. Yeah, I, I think it's Look, the president has made clear since the day he was elected and, frankly, going back through the campaign, that he is someone that seeks to unite this country. Um, he has brought a diverse group of folks into his administration, uh, both in terms of actual positions and people that he has sought the advice of. Um, and I think um, he has been very forceful with his denunciation of people who seek to 
um, attack people because of their hate, because of, excuse me, because of their religion, because of their gender, because of the color of their skin. And it's something that he's going to continue to fight and make very, very clear that he has no place uh, in this administration. But I, I think that it's, it's ironic that no matter how many times he talks about this, that it's never good enough. Um, today, I think, was an unbelievably forceful comment by the president as far as his denunciation uh, of the actions that are currently targeted towards Jewish community centers. But I think that he's been very clear um, previous to this that he wants to be someone that brings his country together and not divide people, um, especially in those areas. So I, I saw that statement. I, I wish that they had um, praised the president for his leadership in this area. And I think that hopefully as time continues to go by, they recognize um, his commitment to civil rights, to um, voting rights, to equality for all Americans. So that was Sean Spicer at his White House press briefing, Stephen Goldstein. That was insane. Uh, Sean Spicer is living in a parallel universe. First of all, admonishing us that we should praise the president. Are we supposed to salute this president? And as far as the words of the president being good enough, who says that to an oppressed community, that our words should be good enough? They simply cannot relate to anyone who looks like themselves. And as far as this president repeatedly calling out anti-Semitism, let alone Islamophobia, racism, sexism, he never speaks about it. So I don't know what, sh oh, what script Sean Spicer was reading from, but it was not a script from reality. Um, also yesterday, um, our other guests organization was raised uh, when the CBS News Foreign Affairs White House correspondent, um, Margaret Brennan, also questioned uh, Spicer on Tuesday. Southern Poverty Law Center said that the number of anti-Muslim groups in the U.S. has tripled between 2015 and 2016 during the time of the campaign. Is this message within the administration, anti-Semitism is not allowed, xenophobia is not allowed, anti-Muslim sentiment within the administration, has the president been forceful about that particular issue? Well, I, don't, I, I think that the president, in terms of his desire to combat radical Islamic terrorism, he understands that people who want to express a, a peaceful position uh, have every right in our constitution. But if you come here or want to express views that are seek to do our country, our people harm, he's going to fight it aggressively, whether it's domestic acts that are going on here or attempts through people abroad to come into this country. So there's a big difference between preventing attacks and making sure that we keep this country safe so that there is no loss of life and allowing people to express themselves in accordance with our First Amendment. Those are two very, very different, different, different things. So that was White House spokesperson Sean Spicer. Mark Potok is with us uh, of the Southern Poverty Law Center, speaking to us from Montgomery, Alabama. Your response, Mark? Well, I mean, I just have to agree. These comments from Spicer, from Trump, are ludicrous in the extreme. I agree that uh, they both seem to be living in another universe. I mean, let's get real about Trump. This is, he's the divider in chief. This is a guy who began his campaign describing Mexican immigrants as rapists and drug dealers. Uh, and he has gone on to denounce just about every minority out there. Uh, you know, it has just been an extraordinary thing to watch. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, what has happened with Trump is that when he finally gets backed into a corner uh, by reporters or other people, uh, you know, he kind of uh, says a few words, uh, as was said by the other guests just now, with incredible insincerity. Uh, about how terrible this anti-Semitism is and uh, Islamophobia and so on. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the truth is, is that Donald Trump has played footsie. 
uh, with the radical right from the very start of his campaign. Uh, he has studiously avoided denouncing or disavowing the extreme right again and again and again. I mean, let's remember how Trump uh, claimed not to know who David Duke, uh, the former Klan leader, uh, is. Uh, therefore, he couldn't disavow him. You know, that was simply a falsehood, a lie, to speak plainly. Uh, he knew perfectly well who Duke was. In fact, in 2000, uh, Trump wrote an essay in The New York Times saying why he was dropping uh, his bid for the presidency on the Reform Party ticket because Duke was associated with the Reform Party and Trump couldn't have anything to do with it. So this is all a word game uh, with an awful lot of falsehoods being sprinkled oh. around. Oh, I want freedom beneath the lines. Give me something I can change and make right. What's right is freedom in our lives. Commit us something that is real. Something we can feel tonight. I don't really want to fight. I just want what's right. We all know what's right. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism demand the Trump administration take action to fight anti-Semitism. Last week, all 100 members of the Senate sent a letter to the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Justice, and the FBI calling on them to address the string of bomb threats made against Jewish community centers, Jewish day schools and synagogues, and desecration of Jewish cemeteries across the country. Around the same time, 100 leaders of the Jewish community centers wrote to Jeff Sessions expressing their frustration at the lack of federal-level involvement in the investigations. Days later, the Department of Homeland Security finally pledged to investigate these crimes, though their more than two-month delayed response has been duly noted by all. The lack of any serious action by Trump and the feds prompted the Anti-Defamation League to basically do the work for them. In a post on the ADL blog and Medium, the CEO and National Director of ADL, Jonathan Greenblatt, proposed a nine-point plan of action for the Trump administration to address anti-Semitism, while also calling out Trump for his reluctance to address it. Greenblatt wrote, quote, Whether invective is coming from the extreme right or the radical left, it is irresponsible for leaders to shrug aside the slander and write off hateful threats or bomb scares as empty hoaxes. In an environment where there is no price to be paid for prejudice, bigots will continue to turn up the dial, unquote. The ADL plan includes the appointment of a new White House coordinator for fighting hate, a DOJ directive encouraging state and local law enforcement agencies to train officers on handling hate crimes, clarification from DHS on its Countering Violent Extremism program to ensure it encompasses all forms of extremism, increased Department of Education funding for anti-bias, anti-hate content in schools, and more. You can make sure the Trump administration is forced to address these proposed actions by sharing this plan widely on social media as well as with your local representatives and especially your senators who all signed on to the letter to DHS, DOJ, and the FBI. To see the post, go to the ADL blog under the News tab on ADL.org or get the link from our show notes. Again, we want to ask you to help us in our work to amplify the most effective activism. If you've come across an action or a new organization that's doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda, please share it with us by emailing amanda at bestoftheleft.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized 
organized under the activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if fighting hate in all of its forms is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about demanding the Trump administration take action to fight anti-Semitism via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. There's no better time to take a page out of Anne Frank's diary. Quote, How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Can you stand up and be counting? There's a body in a crowd. Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. The policies and positions coming out of Trumpco are consistently alarming. We need to keep paying attention to the people they are coming from. Reaction against anti-government sentiment and action can get very, very personal. February 22nd, 1943, schoolgirl Sophie Schell was killed because she was leading student resistance against Hitler. We are not there yet. I'm not saying we're there yet. With luck, we will never be there. But we do have people working with Trump who don't seem entirely balanced when it comes to criticism of individual citizens. This is a weird and disturbing instance. Let's go to Newsweek for this. They say an embattled White House terrorism advisor whose academic credentials have come under widespread fire telephoned one of his main critics at home. Tuesday night, and threatened legal action against him, Newsweek has learned. Sebastian Gorka, whose views on Islam have been widely labeled extremists, called noted terrorism expert Michael Smith in South Carolina and expressed dismay that Smith had been criticizing him on Twitter. According to a recording of the call provided to Newsweek, Smith said, I was like a deer in the headlights. This is a Republican, mind you who has advised congressional committees in the use of social media by ISIS. He told Newsweek, I thought it was a prank. He began by threatening me with a lawsuit. So let's listen to these first few minutes of the call. Now, mind you, I'm giving you four to five minutes at most of a 20-minute-plus phone call from a White House deputy assistant, presumably paid by our taxes, who is attacking a citizen about his tweets. Just explain to me why you're putting those emails on a social media Twitter. Well, again, no, so, the question. so to answer the question, uh-huh. um, I was highlighting my concerns about the fact that you are working in the White House. And, but, but, but and when the, you're being connected to me by a National Security Council colleague, why would you react with your concerns when he's recommending you to me. How, how does that concern you? Why is that a reason of concern? I'm not so, I don't understand how Josh is connecting us is, is a problem for you. Is it because I didn't get back to you fast enough? Is that the reason? I mean, have we ever met? No, we have not. As a matter of fact... So, so why, why, why is there such vitriol pumping out of you constantly, every day now? It's, it's so strange. I looked at your Twitter feed you know, once or twice a day. And again, it's 
half a dozen tweets about me, and I've never met you. Wow, are are you are you defeating jihad by monitoring or trolling my Twitter feed? I mean, honestly, to begin, oh my God, you, okay. you've if that's, called. If that's your, if that's your explanation, you've, you've called. You've called as as a White House official. You have called an American citizen. And begun yes, the conversation very confrontationally by accusing me of animus towards you, of which I've, I'm attempting to explain. There is no animus towards you. I believe that you so are a charlatan. Me a fake yes, is not animus. That no, there, that, that's not. That, I, no, I would submit to you tweets from your Twitter feed that are attacking my personal professional integrity is not animus. What is it? You trying to be friendly with me? No, no. As a matter of fact, that's not the case at all. As I would I would submit to you that a majority of terrorism experts who have experience working with policymakers, which you do not until now, would agree that you are not a expert of level sufficient to be working in the White House with the president's but that's inner one circle. Man's opinion: a man who has a two-year-old TV clip into his Twitter feed. And point, having to point out that he had an op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal as your header. I mean, that's your qualifications. You don't have a, a TV hit from more than two years ago. I mean, isn't that peculiar that you're questioning my credentials and your last TV hit is two years ago? Actually, that's not to, true. That's you, that's you not true. Sebastian, Sebastian, what, what I'll do, what I'd be happy to do. This is your op-ed. I would be I mean, happy. Your qualifications. Who made you the arbiter of counterterrorism? proficiency and policy relevance in the United States. Could you tell me who did that? Well, how about this, Sebastian? Why don't I share with you correspondence from members of Congress, which highlights I have been directly Fine. involved in the formulation Do of it. national security policy. It. Here's my email. You've got my email, right? Sebastian.l.org. And, and so why don't, why don't I, why don't I add to that? Why don't I add to that a list? Mr. Smith, how about this? Why don't, how about, no, how about no, this? you've called me an American citizen whom you are working for, and approached me in a very confrontational manner, okay, suggesting, suggesting, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish, let me finish. I invite you to the White House Thursday for a cup of coffee, and you can bring all your evidence about why you have problems with me, and we'll discuss it over a cup of coffee. How's that? How friendly an offer is that? Well, it would be friendly if you could give me two weeks, because you've caught me in the middle of preparing for a speech. Uh, that I have to give okay. next week. All right, hang on. I'll open my calendar right now. Hold on, hold on. So two weeks from now, twenty eighth is one week. Be better two yet, why don't, why don't we do this? How about, how about Wednesday the eighth? Why don't we do Wednesday this? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? Wednesday the eighth is open in the afternoon. How about a uh, two o'clock? meeting at the White House. Does that work for you? Well, I would need to have specifics about who else will be in attendance, because if you're planning on bringing the White House legal counsel, I'd be happy to no, bring no, no, my no. own along. Just you and me. Because you've coffee. already threatened a lawsuit. You, you, I, no, no. If you really want to explain to me your problems, then let's just be the two of us in my office uh, in the White House complex. How's that? I will get back to you on it. I'll, I'll tentatively say yes. I'd be happy to meet you then. Newsweek finishes that story up with something that I'm sure broke Smith's heart. Quote, late Wednesday, Gorka withdrew his invitation, quote, given your statements for the latest attack piece and continued disparaging tweets. God, these people in tweets. Continued disparaging tweets against not only myself, but the administration and the president, Gorka said to Smith, consider your invitation to meet withdrawn. 
This would be really funny if this guy were not respected by and listened to by the leader of the free world. It's good to see people stand up to these folks. The Anne Frank Center is having none of Trump's parodies of condemnation of anti-Semitic groups. Parker Malloy put it this way for Upworthy. She wrote, on Tuesday, Trump traveled to the National Museum of African American History and Culture. There he finally, finally addressed threats against the Jewish community. Quote, the anti-Semitic threats are targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that must still be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. Trump said. This was somewhere around the time he was touting how big his margin of the electoral win he got in South Carolina. Go figure. But anyway, back to Malloy's story. The AFC is not letting Trump off the hook that easily, calling his statement a band-aid on the cancer of anti-Semitism that has infected his own administration. While Trump has now at least acknowledged the problem, he still hasn't said anything about how he plans to address it. So the AFC got on Twitter and said, do not make us Jews settle for crumbs of condescension. What are you going to do about anti-Semitism in the White House? They tweeted out, Mr. President, your too little too late acknowledgement of anti-Semitism today is not enough. That was posted by the Anne Frank Center for Mutual Respect. Sean Spicer, of course, had to get in on this at his next press conference. He said... I think it's ironic, no matter how many times he talks about this, that it's never good enough. He doubled down on the group's remarks, saying, so I saw that statement. I wish they'd praise the president for his leadership in this area. Sean, 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 he has to exhibit leadership before he gets praised for it. But I digress. Hopefully, he says, as time continues to go by, they recognize his commitment to civil rights, to voting rights, to equality for all Americans. Yes, perhaps if they are dropped on their heads, they will come to that realization. So then the Anne Frank Center's executive director showed up to talk about this on CNN, and they put him opposite conservative commentator Kaylee McKinney from The Hill. He was not having her tiresome pokes about Trump having Jews in the family. Some of my best friends are Jewish. And I've got to ask you straight on, so you think the president does not like Jews and is prejudiced against Jews. You think that about the president of the United States? You bet. And do you know why? And wow, it's right, Kaylee. Do you know why? Does he hate his daughter? Does he hate his son? You know what, Kaylee? You know what, Kaylee? I am tired of commentators like you from the right trotting out his daughter, trotting out his son-in-law as talking points against the president's anti-Semitism. They are Jewish, but that is not a talking point against anti-Semitism. And that is a disgrace. Let's let's dissect your statement. Have you no no ethics than to invoke invoke people's religion as a talking point? Let's make this a dialogue. That itself is anti-Semitic. Let's make this a dialogue instead of a monologue. Do you think the president dislikes his daughter? Okay. You know, answer the question. You, you know answer, because you said I, he doesn't like Jews and his I'm daughter's under no obligation to answer a curveball question. Because you can't be- answer the question. Because it's a nonsensical answer. question based on nothing. So, of course, this morning, the fake news troops are obediently tut-tutting all this as a cry for relevance from the, quote, obscure center. You can always tell when that's the edict that has gone out for how to attack these stories. Tweets, stories, social media, they all say the obscure Anne Frank Center because I guess they hadn't heard of it or it's just a way to make them unimportant. 
If it's so obscure, you have to wonder why Trump and Spicer and their surrogates are in a full push against them. We just heard clips today starting with Democracy Now! discussing Trump avoiding reference to the Jews on Holocaust Remembrance Day. The Young Turks broke down some of the real-world consequences that play out when people make anti-Semitic jokes. The Majority Report spoke with Mark Potak from the Southern Poverty Law Center about the rise in anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim violence under Trump. The David Pakman Show discussed Sebastian Gorka's ties with anti-Semitic Holocaust deniers. Democracy Now! discussed the Anne Frank Center's response to Trump's too-little-too-late remarks on anti-Semitism. Our activism for today is in support of the Anti-Defamation League's action plan to address anti-Semitism, and we just heard guest host Angie Coiro talk on the broadcast about Sebastian Gorka's bizarre call to someone whose tweets he didn't like and the White House's full push against the Anne Frank Center. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hi Jay, this is Kiki again. Thanks so much for for putting my question out there. And thank you, Ken, for responding to it. I agree with Ken wholeheartedly. The progressive argument is compassionate and humanitarian. And I do understand that there are some conservatives that have the, the concern of culture mixing, which may not necessarily be racism, but there you go. But after all of that, though, I think, Ken, you, you left it open, uh, as I did. Like, what, what should we, what what should our policy be? What's the gold standard for immigration as, as progressives? For instance, healthcare, we, we want universal healthcare, and we want a $15 an hour minimum wage, or fuck it, 30, you know, uh, free tuition, college tuition, anyway. What do we want with immigration? You know, if uh, maybe this isn't something that we we should be talking about. It's of such low priority that we should focus on other things. I don't know. I don't think that's the case, given all the cruel things that are happening now and that have happened in the past. You know, these cruel things, unfortunately, are in the law. How come we never changed it? You know. Anyway, if there's anyone out there that does have a somewhat succinct answer to this it'll be great to hear and you know any other opinions would be would be helpful thanks so much jay and um keep up the good work bye now hello there jay uh, my name is alexander grazier and I currently live in Grand Canyon Village, Arizona. I'm not from Arizona, I'm from Oregon, but the reason I'm calling is I thought now would be an especially good time to call after your episode about the myth of individualism and the American dream. I have for a long time regarded myself as a collectivist because I definitely consider collectivism uh, the only rational social ideology, to be honest, and I severely reject and am severely critical of the individualism of Western society, especially the excessive individualism of American society. 
And um, I'm actually planning on, if I can, I would actually love to start creating a presence in politics. And I actually plan on launching my own political party, if I can. I want to call it Progressive Humanitarian Collectivist Party. And my party is founded on, my ideology and the party to go with it is founded on several values. I'll go over some of the most important, selflessness and benevolence. And this ties into collectivism, which is another core value. It's obviously in the party name, Progressive Humanitarian Collectivist Party. I do believe that the individual is only valuable in relation to the whole. But of course, that is why, as you said, we can't go too far in either direction, because the empowerment of the individual is crucial to maximizing the individual's contribution to the well-being of the collective. And so uh, my party embraces collectivism because we're all just drops in an ocean, cogs in a machine, if you will, to use some cliches. And we believe that, uh, or I believe, that selflessness and benevolence are the key to being a valuable member of society and a contributor to maximizing the well-being of humanity and posterity, which I believe should be the ultimate goal of humanity. And I guess you could say that epistemophilia and pragmatism would be a couple more values of my party, a couple more core values, because pragmatism and consequentialism, you have to consider consequences and what is best for the productive and emotional or mental well-being of society. And epistemophilia, the embrace of knowledge and logic, because I firmly believe that once you embrace knowledge and logic and you are in touch with reality and you embrace reality, you realize that being selfless and benevolent and contributing to the well-being of others and serving society is ultimately the best possible function of your life. And once you have enough knowledge to know that you should be selfless and benevolent, the more knowledge you acquire and the more you use logic, the more you can contribute your part to the well-being of the collective. And so I guess I could call myself a collectivitualist, if you will, because the individual should not ever be considered isolated from the whole, but individual empowerment is crucial to maximizing the well-being of the whole, and I regard the ultimate collective as humanity and posterity. So if anyone's interested in my party, I would love to get that off the ground, and I doubt it will get much support anytime soon, but I would still love for more people to hear about it and express their interest in it. I do believe in combining left-wing and right-wing ideals to uh, pursue the maximization of humanity and posterity's well-being, but I heavily sympathize with the progressive left, which is, should obviously be indicated by the fact that I am a huge fan of this podcast. Anyway, love your show. Uh, keep up the good work. If anyone's interested in my idea for a new political party, collectivist, uh, heavily sympathizes with progressive values, but has some right-wing values mixed in, I would love to get that off the ground and start developing an actual presence in politics someday in the eventual future. Anyway, thank you very much for your good work. Keep it up. I can't wait for the next episode. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So I'm certainly glad to hear at least one strong, interesting response to that last episode about individualism. And uh, that was a much different 
much less political, much more philosophical episode than I usually do. I, I felt like we were all due for a break. Uh, you know, politics is, is a pretty, pretty rough, pretty dense, pretty dark these days. So I was inspired to try to do, you know, something like that. You know, I, I have a whole pile of clips that are sort of in that realm, that sort of cultural, philosophical uh, sort of stuff. And when I started going through them, I didn't have a plan to do a show on individualism the way it, it came out. That sort of materialized of its own accord. I, I was as surprised as anyone that as I was going through my research process, all these conversations kept coming up again and again and again with that focus on individualism. And my first thought was, oh, great, like I should make a mental note to do an episode on that one day. And then I just, I ended up with enough that it turned into a, a full episode. I thought, great. But all of this, it was inspired by an emailer who, I, I read you part of her email. Her name is Alix. I, I hope I'm pronouncing that close to right. And she was the one who who wrote in talking about how members of oppressed communities actually gain resilience and creativity from being in, in that position. And so I, I read you know a big chunk of her email. And after she heard that, she responded and thanked me for considering her email worthy of sharing on the show and then proceeded to write another beautiful email. And when I read that, I was like, oh, perfect. I, yes, she's right. I need to do an episode sort of on that topic. Uh, get away from the politics a little bit, focus on culture and, and you know, community and working together. And so that, that's what I set out to do. And that's, that's what that episode turned into. So again, because she's uh, got plenty of great things to say. I just want to share a little bit more uh, from this follow-up email that, uh, that Alex wrote. So she says, in part, At the end of the day, when we so desperately seek a meaning to life, when we have reached the professional elite position we so carefully and tirelessly have worked for, when we have purchased the home and vehicle we so frantically believed would be a testament to all that we have accomplished and would represent us in a dignified manner, and yet the emptiness still calls to us at the end of the day, when all that we have accomplished, purchased, done, does not relieve that feeling of insufficiency, when all the praying, schooling, reading, researching, refusing, uses to quiet the void. There, it's where you must come to terms and somehow understand that our true purpose in life comes from living a life of service, an unconditional need to assist in helping others reach their goal in life so that they too can have a chance to serve others in making their dreams come true. This act creates a bond and a sense of purpose. It unites us with the universe. So that is a, a beautiful sentiment said beautifully. I, I couldn't agree more. And it reminds me sort of in, in a, in another perspective of a, what I think is probably a pretty famous Jim Carrey quote. I only heard of it within the last couple of years, but I'm not sure when he said it, but Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. And I've got to say, one of the things I am most grateful for in life is having learned lessons like this fairly early on, you know, not from childhood or anything, but like in my late 20s, early 30s, like starting to learn things like this, I feel saved me from 
years or potentially decades of chasing after the wrong stuff and only ultimately discovering much later, oh, shoot, (laughs) that didn't work. And I think, though, that it is pretty similar to investing. Basically, the one thing that all investors have in common is that they wish they had started earlier. But the flip side of that coin is that it is never too late to start. You know, you'll hear this every once in a while that, you know, someone in their 50s will say, oh, man, you know, I, I should have been saving for retirement this whole time, but I never did. And, well, I guess it's just too late to start now. But no, that's ridiculous. You know, it's better to start saving when you're 50 than when you're 60. It's better to start when you're 60 than when you're 70 and so on. And such is life. The, the best time to start investing, ho- however that means, whether that means literally investing and, and saving for retirement or investing in yourself and your own life and trying to live the best life you know how, the best time to start is right now. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. This is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is we're fooling.